RB, what are the pros and cons of artists networking on Twitter and Facebook? Well, I think, you know, the, the obvious thing is access. You know, we live in an, an age, a digital age, where, you know, 10, 15 years ago, to go network with somebody, you had to be either at an event or, uh, well, you had to be at an event, really, or you had to live in an, in an area in L.A. or New York or London, let's say, where, you know, uh, the people that complemented what you were trying to do in your craft were available to you. But in, you know, the digital world and with the advent of social media, you can reach anybody at any time. Now, your approach matters, of course. You know, the way that you approach these people, it means everything, you know, but you could reach, you know, if you're a screenwriter and you want to reach a manager, uh, if you're a filmmaker, you want to reach a producer, um, you know, it's, it's there, it's available to you at any time. It's just, you know, very, very much a matter of approach. Well, speaking of which, approaches that are um, conducive to a relationship and some that are not. Well, I think the, hey, check me out, hey, look at me uh, approach never works. Uh, we see it in crowdfunding all the time where, you know, people will say, look at my campaign. They, you know, it's the same um, uh, message to everybody. They're spamming, you know, they're going down their list, their, their follower list and, and hitting every single person up with the same response. And to me, that's akin to walking into a crowded room where you're going to go network and walking up to everybody and going into there, screaming into the air, hey, look at me, or hey, give me money. That approach never works. It's the same thing with, you know, just social media that's not crowdfunding, you know, just trying to cultivate a relationship. I think a good approach is asking questions. Uh, you know, you want to give first and then kind of ask second. You know, everybody has an ask. And I like to say that everybody in this world has something they're looking to accomplish. Everybody has goals, okay? Even the person that you're approaching has goals. They're looking to accomplish something. So how do you compliment them? What can you give them? What can you offer them? And maybe it's something as simple as, hey, I saw your film, if it's a producer, let's say, or a filmmaker, really enjoyed it. Um, you know, why did you decide to shoot wide in that particular scene? You know, in, something engaging, something that, that makes that person feel like they're not just getting, um, that you're not just trying to, to get to them, okay? A lot of people, you know, when it comes to social media, they see a large follower account or a lot of likes, or in stage 32, for example, a lot of, net, a lot of people in a person's network and they immediately think, oh, I, you know, I have to get to that person. And the approach is waving and screaming and that, that, you know, it doesn't work. I always say you treat your online networking the same way that you treat your real world networking. And what I mean by that is that if you weren't going to walk in, up to somebody at an event and say, hey, look at me, well, don't do it online either. If you want to walk up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I'm a big fan or, hey, you know, I really enjoyed what you did with this. I'd like to introduce myself. This is what I do. I, you know, I think that's okay. But it's always, to me, it's always about giving first, you know, giving something to that person first. And usually I like to say give first, second, and third before you ask for something in return. So let's say uh, a young filmmaker wants to launch a Twitter account. It's the first day they've come up with their profile name and what their bio is going to be. What would they start tweeting about? Maybe they're planning on a crowdfunding campaign a year in advance. What would be some things that they should Well, I, I think the first thing they need to do is make sure they have a completed bio. It's the biggest mistake that people make on social media is they, they don't complete their bio, let everybody know what, you know, and it's, it's okay to be cute and quirky, but if you're really looking to accomplish something, you have to make sure that you're putting it out there. If you're an accomplished, if this filmmaker, this hypothetical filmmaker is a, an accomplished filmmaker, let's say, or somebody that has done something before, you know, uh, I was the director of this short, and here's the IMDb link, or if you're on multiple uh, social media accounts, I like to say that you should close the circle. And what I mean by that is within every social media bio, 
you're adding the links to those other social media accounts so that people can get from one spot to another and you're closing a circle of everything that is you. And it's a big mistake that people make. So that's the first thing I would suggest is that, you know, you really, you have your bio and, you, and you're very comprehensive with your bio. Use all the characters and use all the space you can. And that's probably the one area where it's okay to be a narcissist as well. You know, let people know what you do. If you have a place to, you know, upload a resume, upload a resume. If you have a place to upload clips, make sure you're uploading clips. Use the features the site offers, the social media platform, to uh, your advantage, okay? The second thing I would say is that you want to go out there and you want to let people know, again, what you've accomplished. You want to target people that you feel, and, and the, the situation, the hypothetical that you threw out as far as crowdfunding is concerned, for example, I, you know, you're going to cultivate relationships. You're going to crowdsource, hopefully, three to six months before you start that campaign. You want to be out there marketing before you start that campaign. That's a big mistake that a lot of people with crowdfunding make is that it, you know, if you build it, they will come. It never works. Okay, You need to create your audience or build your audience. First, I mean, really, you need to identify your audience. You need to engage your audience, and then you need to move your audience. And that takes time. And, and so from day one, I would say have a target list of people that you want to follow, people that you think are going to fit in with what you're looking to accomplish. And what I mean by that, it's not just making the film. Maybe it's the subject of the film. Um, you know, if you're making a film that you think a certain group or certain individuals would relate to, you know, if it's a hobby kind of thing, maybe it's something within the story that, you know, maybe your main character is a cyclist and you want to go after the people in the cycling community, just for an example, um, you do that and you start cultivating relationships with them so that when the time comes and you say, okay, the film is now up on Indiegogo, would you please not only support it, but would you please go out there and carry the message of what I'm trying to accomplish to other people? And if you cultivate relationships, you'll get people to go. You'll get people to move for you. But it all starts with um, cultivating those relationships and making sure you're cultivating those relationships. And that begins with, again, with asking questions and offering information and posting good material and maybe writing some good material as well and reposting other people's material and things of that nature. Being a collaborator as opposed to a broadcaster. RB, is there anyone who pitched you recently or in the last few years that uh, you met on social media mm -hmm. and they said, you know what, I want to come work for Stage 32. I want to work for you. Yeah, it happens often. And we actually did hire somebody off of social media. When I say off of social media, somebody that, that I had met on social media and that the staff was familiar with on social media who was also a member of Stage 32 uh, for a while. And the thing that was attractive about that person besides the skill set but the, the, what made us want to look deeper into him was the fact that uh, he had spent months cultivating relationships, not only with me and members of my staff, but with people on the site. And then we were able to look at how he um, handled himself on other social media accounts that he was listed on. And you know, I have a saying that you know, don't do anything online that you wouldn't do in the quote-unquote real world. You know, a lot of people get big balls behind their computer screen. We call it big ball syndrome, right? <laughs> um, and they do, you know, and they think it's okay, you know, to act like an ass more or less. And it comes back to bite you. It really does because you know, people are going to look at how you handle yourself. And it's not just me as an employer. It's me as a producer. You know, if somebody approaches me and says, knows I'm involved with a project, and says. I'm an actor, you know, maybe you should look at me and I go and I do some research on that person and it's not only, you know, they, 
they have the performances are okay. They have their reels. And, you know, like I spoke about earlier, even you do get some people that don't even do that. You'll get, I actually had somebody that hit me up and said, you know, I'm an actor. Take a look at my profile. I went to the profile and on the bio, it literally said, I'm an actor. Okay. And it was like, well, fantastic. Congratulations, you and everybody else. And he has no reels up and nothing. But take the person that has the completed bio and all the, you know, all the media that he should have up there, he or she. You know, I want to look a little deeper. I want to make sure that this person is going to be um, a collaborator on the set, is not going to be completely self-serving, um, is going to have the best interests of his other actors at heart. You know, when you're doing sides, or I mean, when, you know, you're doing close-ups, and he needs to be, you know, he's off camera and he's assisting the other. You could tell a lot by the way a person handles handles himself online. So we go a little bit deeper. So this particular person I was talking about that we hired. Everything that he had done online showed how he would be, or at least I felt proved to me how he would be in an office environment simply because he constantly gave, he constantly asked questions, he was constantly offering, posting great content, retweeting other people's content, sharing, liking, commenting. It matters. It makes a big difference. And that was one of the, that, you know, besides his um, skill set, which was similar to other people who had applied for the job. Uh, that was something that pushed it over the top for us. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you said about uh, big ball syndrome, which that's a great name. <laughs> what if that's part of someone's whole shtick? What if they're like, you know what, I just tell it like it is and I have no filter and if people are offended, well, that's their problem, which you hear that and yeah. there's many different thoughts on all that. Yeah. But if that's their thing, how should they then temper that for the internet or maybe they shouldn't? Well, I don't think they should if that's the way they are in real life. I like, you know, I've never been accused of being shy. I'm pretty blunt, you know, but I like to say that I'm simply honest. I'm, I'm respectful about it. You know, I'm not gonna go out there and call anybody names or be abusive or, you know, if I get into debate, I'm gonna be honest about the debate. I'm not gonna be, um, you know, name calling or anything like that. But I mean, if you're full of bluster and you're full of energy and this is the person that you are offline, then that's fine if that's your persona online. You just have to be careful because, you know, the one, the one exception to things offline and online is that, that you know, nothing replaces that face-to-face -face interaction, of course. So things can get misconstrued online. Um, you know, it's, it's like I, I tell people all the time with emails because I, I try to stay off email as much as possible and do face-to-face -face interaction, even if it's through Skype or through GoToMeeting, because I want to be able to see the person's expression because you know I, I have a great deal of sarcasm and I try you know, my own sense of humor and sometimes it gets lost in, in email people think all of a sudden they're like oh my god you're mad at me and I'm like I'm not mad at you I'm just I'm cracking a joke you know but so you know I, it's the only thing you have to be careful about but if you're consistent in your behavior I think it you know people understand and realize it and then going back to the gentleman that you hired after seeing that he was a giver online and and kind of checking him out aside from seeing that he was generous with his retweeting you saw that his bio and everything was in line. Mm -hmm. It seems like that, that, what did you call it? The full circle? You had a great, the circle. Completing Closing the circle. The circle. I yep. like that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, he had all that. And I mean, he had his resume up. And this was somebody that was also creative as well. So he had uh, a resume for his work, you know, what it was, his work life. So, you know, quote unquote work life. And then he had his resume and experience for his creative life, the things that he was doing um, as a producer and as a filmmaker and things of that nature. That was also interesting for me to see because I was able to look at him through sort of two different lenses and, you know, take a look at his work career, take a look at, I mean, this is his work career as well, but he wasn't doing this full time. It wasn't enough to support him full time, so he was doing this other work. Um, 
But to be able to see that he got it and that he understood it, I mean, we're a social media company, we're an educational com- an education company. We want people that fall into that realm. And he had done a lot of the social media work. He had done some teaching before. And then plus he fit the description of what we were looking for him to do as far as the day-to-day and in what the role that he was looking to fill. Right. And in terms of having two accounts, let's say, one where that's your work life and one that's the fun out of work. You know, we all can be sarcastic. We all can be silly. Yeah. But then keeping in mind, like, you know, I, I don't drink and tweet, you know, different things that like, yeah. so we don't get too out of control because we all can go there. I mean, we're yeah, all human. We can course. all push the boundaries and then go, you know what? I didn't really mean that. Right. Drunk tweeting. <laughs> drunk tweeting. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look, everybody has a personal life too. Sure. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, again, as long as you're staying true to who you are, that's okay. But I do believe that people don't realize sometimes that you are being looked at on social media. Like, you know, if you are applying for a job or even if you're, you're you know, looking to fill a role on a set, you know, and, and people have options, they are going to look. They, they really do. I mean, I've, I was down at South by Southwest and I spoke to so many filmmakers and producers that when I talked about rounding out casts and things like that, I can't tell you how many have mentioned I do my research on social media. I look at what people do. I look at how they, ha- excuse me, how they handle themselves. I look at what they post. I look at their reels. I, you know, and make sure that it's there, that everything is there, because I don't have time to waste, and I don't want poison on my set. And it used to be, like I said, in the old days, you took a shot. You know, somebody would give you a referral, or somebody, you know, you heard about a good, you know, person in town or whatever. But now it's much, much more competitive because if I'm a filmmaker in L.A. Or, you know, let's take me out of L.A. If I'm a filmmaker in, you know, Omaha, okay, I can go onto social media and find cast and crew in Omaha. There's a bunch of different sites even outside of Stage 32 where I could probably look around, go onto LinkedIn or whatever, you know. Not that I recommend that, but, um, but you understand my point is that the pool is bigger, so why shouldn't I be a little bit more selective and why shouldn't I vet people before they're poisoned on my set? RB, is there a success story from Stage 32 that you're really proud of and actually get a little emotional over? There's a, well, there's a few that I get very emotional over. One of them, um, we've had a lot of sort of single success stories, and what I mean by that is, and we have them every day, really. Um, you know, uh, a screenwriter who was in his mid-50s who, you know, had flown close to the sun over a 30-year uh I don't want to call it a career because he didn't have one really, but a 30-year attempt at a career. Um, had a couple of things get optioned, a few things get sold that never, were never made, and finally got to a point where he was ready to give up the ghost. And he decided to pitch through, through the Stage 32 Happy Writers one more time to a manager at Bender Spank because he really, really believed in this one script. Excuse me, and the long story short of it is that within a week, he had been flown to LA for a meeting this manager, uh, Daniel Vanga Bendespink, had read two more pieces of his work, and one of them was a television, um, uh, a television pilot that he had written years ago. And in, Daniel said to him, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to write features or do you want to be in TV? And he said, well, 25 years ago, I wanted to be in a writer's room. That was my dream. And he said, well, why don't you want that now? And he said, well, because I'm 55 years old. And he said, I don't care. He said, go home and pack your bags. And within a week, he had him on blacklist on ABC. So that was a really, really cool story. On a much bigger scale, uh, we have a filmmaker. His name's David Roundtree. Um, he is just a great, you know, great guy. And also a guy that uses social media all the time to vet people and to, you know, look for talent. 
He used, he had two films in theaters over the last six months. One was called 108 Stitches and another one was called Cut. Cut just uh, premiered on Hollywood Boulevard a couple of weeks ago, sold out the whole week. Um, we were the, it was the first film that Stage 32 exclusively distributed online, so we were really proud of that. And he used, for cut, I mean, for 108 Stitches, he used 22 Stage 32 members, and for Cut, he used um, 34. And the really, the cool thing is that some of the people that he found on Stage 32 were incredibly accomplished. His sound editor uh, has worked on 170 studio films, including all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and so on and so forth. She was his sound editor. He found her on Stage 32. She was the sound editor on both movies. It, you know, these stories, we hear them all the time. You know, we just had a composer um, in Florida who's scoring a movie for a guy in India. One of the very, actually one of the very first success stories we had was a, uh, a composer story as well. It was a filmmaker in L.A. who had exhausted all his contacts in L.A. They just weren't getting his film. It was this dark, noir kind of film. And he basically put together a couple of clips and said, put it out in, onto the Stage 32 Lounge and said, I am willing, I'm at wit's end, I'm willing to have people, the next 10 people that contact me are going to have a shot at scoring these scenes, okay? And he ended up hiring uh, a composer from Denmark. Just kept sending the files over to the, they got onto, you know, they got onto chat, they talked, they, you know, the video conference, and this guy got to score his first Hollywood movie. So that gentleman, David, had a profile on yeah. Stage 32, yes. and so he would put that he's a, a director, composer, what he chose. He was a director, yeah. He was a director, okay. Yeah, and a right, he co-wrote one of the two movies. He co-wrote Cut as well, yeah. And so when you said post on the Stage 32 lounge, and we did create an account, so I did see yeah. kind of how, <laughs> how it works a little bit and karma points and all that, we'll go into that later, but so he then put out a call to action, or how does that work if I wanna put out a call? He, well, there's two different ways. We have a job section, and in the job section, you could put up your project and your needs, your cast and crew needs, okay? He went in there and he said, I'm looking for the following actors, these types. Okay. okay. Um, I'm looking for, uh, I think he had his cinematographer from the first film, but I'm looking for this crew, you know, people to film the, fill these roles. And then well, other Stage 32 members can go in there and apply for those roles. And again, this is why it's very, very important that you have a completed profile at this point, because now David will go and look at your resume, you know, through the site, um, your clips, you know, everything. And then he can contact you and say, let's, you know, either let's talk about it or you're not, I don't feel like you're right for it or, or whatever. Um, that's pretty much how he did it with both movies. And that's how a lot of people on the site do it. You know, we have hundreds of jobs posted every day right. and, uh, you know, hundreds of projects that are live and active at any given moment. And it's free, right? For Completely the poster free. and the, and Completely the free. inquiry person. Okay. Yeah. Has anyone ever written to you and said, RB, you know, I love your site, but no one's contacting me. I'm putting in for these projects and I'm not getting anything back. And you took a look at their profile and said, well, here's some suggestions and this is probably why. And it changed it around. All the time. Okay. And one of the cool things about the site and my staff is that everybody's involved in, inside the site, even down to our, our technical people, the people that actually designed the site. We're all very, very active in the community. And we try to act as sort of traffic cops in a lot of ways too. You know, if you're in the wrong spot or if you're not quite getting it here, you know, we try to make it, it's an extremely comprehensive site. There's a ton of resources and, and features. So we try to make, you know, our, our FAC area, our help area, extremely comprehensive. But on top of that, we also get into the site and we respond to everybody 
we also check, you know, if we just see a post in a, in a, in a wrong spot, we'll say, hey, you know, you may want to post in this section, you're going to get a better response. But to answer directly, it happens all the time. We'll get people that will say, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this site. You know, nobody is getting back to me on the on uh, job requests and things like that. And then you go and you look and you see, you'll always see the same issues. The, the lack of a bio, the lack of a complete, you know, no re I'm an actor, but there's no reels. I'm a composer, there's no samples, you know, things of that nature. Um, or I'm an actor and there's no headshots. I mean, come on. And then uh, the second thing that you'll see is that they're not active. They're not participating. And it's a big deal. David, you know, we talked earlier about David Roundtree. And one of the things that David said to me was that if I go to look at somebody's um, profile and I see that they're not active in the community, they're automatically eliminated for me because I feel like they're just coming in here to be a one-way street. They just see me, they see I'm casting this thing and, and that's it, but they're not contributing anything to anybody else. So again, his mentality is, and I agree with this, if they're going to be this way offset, maybe they're going to be this way onset and I don't have the time to waste. And I, you know, it's hard enough running a set as it is. You don't want, you know, out, you know, people, people causing problems and people that are all about themselves. So it always comes down to the same mistakes. It always comes down to, it's, a, it's social media. You know, you need to be in there. You need to be active. You need to be social. You need to be networking. Um, you know, I, I'll hear from people that say, I'm getting nothing out of this site. And I go and look at their profile and they have no network connections. You know I mean? They, they, they haven't connected with anybody. Well, of course you're not getting anything out of the site. You know, it's akin to sitting in the dark in your house and waiting for somebody to ring the bell and go, hey, you want to roll? Or hey, you want to come work on this movie? I mean, it's not going to happen. It never does. Um, and it's certainly not going to happen on social media. So let's say someone has a nice completed bio, they've put up a reel, they're an actor, they have a headshot, they have a great, um, you know, they, their bio says more than just plain actor. How can they be active on stage 32? Are they like recommending Forgive well, me. I, no, yeah. no, it's okay. Um, well, mainly the Stage 32 Lounge. Okay. The Stage 32 Lounge, well, it's, I mean, this is one way. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Sharing of content, it's no different than any other social media site. Sharing of content, contributing to threads, um, you know, helping people out if they're asking questions. But the Stage 32 Lounge, the way it's broken up, we pretty much complement every discipline and every stage of a film production. For example, like pre-production, filming, you know, during the process and post-production and things of that nature. So no matter what your discipline is, there's a place for you, okay? And because we live in a world now, you know, a DIY world and where we have more, more multi-hyphenates than ever, which I think is a good thing, where we're wearing, you know, wearing multiple hats. You know, I started as an actor, now I'm actor, screenwriter, producer, director. I have multiple places to go talk to people and ask questions or, you know, if I come across a piece of content to post it on, you know, in the, in the appropriate section. There's a currency on social media and that currency is activity. You know what I mean? That, that currency is, um, is giving, you know what I mean? It's, it's putting your best foot forward. And again, like I said earlier, cultivating relationships. The more you do that, the more currency you get, the more people look at you as somebody, you know, either A, an authority, or B, somebody that can be trusted, or C, somebody that they want to work with, you know what I mean? But if you're not doing those things, you don't have that currency. And if you don't have that currency, why would anyone want to talk to you? Why would anyone want to hire you? You know what I mean? So if you're going to be on social media, you really have to work it. You know, you got to treat it um, like a 24-7 networking opportunity, Right. you know? When you wake up in the morning, are you checking your phone like 
I mean, it, it deserves that part of you. I mean, because sometimes I do that, like, it, and I'm like, what am I doing? But then you see that, like, it's 24-7. You're always connected like that. Yeah, well, I mean, from the obvious standpoint, as the CEO of the company, there's the business part of it. But, you know, from my creative end, and, you know, I have to balance these two, uh, but a lot of people do. I mean, a lot of people have a work life, and they're, you know, they're creating, they're getting up in the morning and writing, or they're filming at night or on weekends or whatever. We all have to do, you know, we all have this balance, unless we're doing it full-time. Um, there is this responsibility I feel like I have to myself. Uh, you know, if I'm in screenwriting mode, let's say, there's a responsibility to myself to find hours in the day to write. But there's also a responsibility to myself to be out there networking to meet people. And I can do that online. So, you know, if I'm, even if I'm online grabbing my morning cup of coffee, I could be checking, you know, the lounge or I could be checking my wall or checking my private messages or seeing the new members that joined the site and saying, hey, I want to connect with them. And, and, you know, I take advantage of all my time. You know, we're always on the go and everything like that. But I'm not wasting it on Facebook. You know what I mean? I'm not. I know friends and family, you know, they could text me, they can call me. You know, somebody wants to send me a picture of their kid, they can send me a picture of their kid or what they have for lunch, they can send me. I don't need to be on there, you know, doing that. Um, I want to go where I maximize my time. And that's why, you know, I, I built Stage 32 in the first place. So I, I, I just think it's so vital. I think it's such an important tool. And, you know, social media in general is such an important tool. Like I said, you have access to people you never had before. Why wouldn't you be taking advantage of that? And I think that, you know, the mistake that a lot of creatives make is that they want to spend so much time creating but if you're not out there and nobody knows what you're, what you're capable of or nobody can see your work or, you know, you don't have the right contacts to see your work, or, it, then what's the point? Arby, you said in the past in prior interviews that one of the number one reasons people quit the entertainment industry is because they don't have the contacts um, sure. or connections. Yeah. So why and, and how can we turn it around? Well, you know, when I first started as an actor in New York, there was no social media. I mean, like, you know, it was Friendster and maybe the early days of Facebook and things of that nature, but nobody was looking at it as, you know, something that, we, a tool that we could use to meet people that would further our careers. And a lot of my friends that were in New York who were actors, uh, really, really talented people, ended up leaving for all the reasons that you would imagine. You know, they had tried it out for five years and, you know, they, now they wanted to have a family or they, you know, they needed to bring in an income and they just had to, you know, um, and it was sad to see. And that always stayed with me because, you know, again, when you're a creative and you see creative people leave the, you know, leave the biz or leave, you know, give up the ghost, so to speak, uh, it bothers you because you're like, man, so much talent, right? That always stayed with me. So when the embryonic idea of Stage 32 kind of came into play while I was working on an independent film and I saw the cast and crew come together as a family and then go their separate ways where, oh, it's like summer camp, we're all going to stay together, we're all going to hang out and everything and of course it doesn't happen because everybody's got to go do the next gig and, and you know and then when you do hear from him again it's like uh, do you know any do you know any uh, place where I can get some work do you know anything that's going on is can you hire me for anything that made me think back to my actor friends back in New York and it made me realize I looked at myself because now at this point social media had exploded and these you know broad-based social media platforms had exploded like Facebook but I wasn't on it because I didn't see the, the need for it as far as my career was concerned. So that's what brought me to niche social media and the idea of starting this site. And I feel like that is what is turning it around. I do feel like, again, the idea that, you know, I am in this town and I am looking for work 
you know, in this discipline. And here's where I could go to go try to find that work or to make connections that could lead me to a job is the thing that's turning it around. You know, one of the features we have on the site is the Stage 32 meetup section, and it's something we're enormously proud of. We, we've revamped the entire thing. And the whole idea is that, yes, networking online is great. It's great for everybody. But like I said earlier, there's nothing that replaces that face-to-face -face interaction. So what we allow our members to do is to, any member could do this, could set up a Stage 32 meetup in their town and take their networking offline. So you get these great big groups that come together at a local bar or maybe somebody's house or whatever to do their networking there. And it's amazing the stories we hear, the, the jobs that come out of it, you know, the, the films that get launched, the funding that comes out of it, you know, because this person knows that person and so on. And it's just something that wasn't available to us 10 years ago. Let's say someone emails you for the first time, yeah. okay? Maybe they just started a Stage 32 account and then you get this email, hey RB, would love to meet for coffee. I'm gonna be in LA. Yeah. Um, what do you say to them? I'd love to pick your brain, yeah, I get it all the time. I mean, it's, it's part and parcel of running something like this. And what I normally do is I try to steer them to a stage 32 meetup I'm going to be at or something along those lines because it's very, very difficult. You know, I'm not going to downplay it. This site has become a monster. It's, it takes up an enormous amount of my time. And then I do have my creative pursuits. You know, I'm writing a book. I have a screenplay in development. I have a, a thing I'm producing that's in development. So, I mean, it's, it, it's only so many hours in the day. And I give everybody individual attention. Uh, anyone who writes to me on the site gets a response. My, when you join the site, you see my mug on your wall, and you know if you respond to that welcome message, I respond to every single one of them. Uh, one of my uh, tech people told me the other day that I have made, in the three and a half year history of this site, something like 29,000 posts on the site. That doesn't count private messages, that doesn't count emails, that doesn't count responses to Twitter, it, you know, so it's on and on and on. So I try to be as generous with my time as I can. But if I could take that single person and put them into a collaborative environment as opposed to just having that one-on-one -on -one with me, which they can still have at this event, but it's also they're gonna meet maybe 30, 40, 50 other people, I'd rather do that. I think it's a better way and I think it's more, a more rewarding way in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Because now this person has contacts in my town or in LA. So advice to someone that's new to this town or new to New York, who sees someone of influence like yourself and says, you know what, can I pick your brain? Can I take you out to coffee? How do they see it from the other person's point of view? Because they probably see it as, well, their thing is so important and they're the, and, and it's really, you just gotta meet me and you'll be fine. Yeah. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna know that I'm gonna go places. I think if, you know, if the approach is right, I mean, it's not that I haven't done it before. You know, I, I did it actually at Sundance like three times um, and enjoyed all three conversations, great conversations, but the approach to me was fantastic. The approach to me was really enjoying what you're doing, really a big, you know, a couple of them knew some of the things that, you know, I was working on, had done the research to say, you know, some of them knew me from, a couple of them knew me from Razor Magazine, said, you know, I used to read your magazine and I love, that, that makes an impact on you. And that makes you want to, because, you know, again, they're, they're, they've done their research, they're trying to cultivate a relationship with me, I think that's great. Um, I've done it with other people, you know, maybe not even as much as I should have in the past because I do think it's important to have mentors and be able to pick brain, the brains of people who maybe are either more accomplished or, or have are a few steps ahead of where you are um, in your career. I think it's very important. Um, but I just think that it's, you have to be understanding of a person's time and space and I think you have to be, you have to be understanding of 
you know, I never give anyone a direct no, let's say. What I'll say is if I can't, or like I'm leaving town the next day, or my schedule's packed or whatever, I'll say, what, what would you like to talk about? What, you know, and then I'll say, email me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Send me, you know, send me something through the site or whatever, and you know, I'll talk to you. You know, it can't always be, can you read my script? And it can't always be, can you watch my film? Because again, there's only so many hours in the day, and there's, you know, we all have other things going on. But um, sometimes I'll also try to connect them with other people I know if it's something that I feel like, you know, maybe I'm not the best person for them for that particular thing. You know, it's it's all it's everything is sort of an individual. Uh, circumstance, you know, and you have to just kind of weigh it all out. But I can say that it all starts with the approach of the other person. Sure. So at Sundance, yeah, you're in Park City. There might not be a lot of other things aside the festival going on. So yeah, that would be a great place for someone to meet up. But here in LA, because you are involved with so many things, mm -hmm. and Stage 32 is so much of your life, you would recommend that maybe someone send a question via email instead of so they don't get that rejection. You see what I'm saying? Because yeah. they might take it wrong, and it's not that someone doesn't value their time. It's and, and I make it very, I mean, I never, uh, you know, avoided or, uh, I'm never not, I'm always honest about it. You know I mean? If, if it really is a time thing, it's really a time thing. If it's really that I feel like I can't help that person in that particular area, if they're looking for something very, very specific, I could say, well, let me look at it, and maybe I could direct you in the right direction. But it's also this idea that, um, if I can put somebody in a situation, like I was saying earlier, if there's a meetup going on in town, and in LA that we, we constantly have stage 32 meetups happening, if I can put them in a situation where they're networking with 50 people and not just me, then I think that's really you know, productive for them and you know, exactly why they're on the site to begin with. They're on the site to meet other people and, and uh, network. You know? So if I can give them both, you know, give them that five, 10 minutes at, at the event and then give them a whole support system, I'd rather do that. I just want to play devil's advocate for a minute here. Sure. Um, so don't you think though the sentiment about it's all who you know places too much um, emphasis on sort of ooh, climbing on the backs of others versus working on the craft? I think it's two separate things. Okay. I mean, I think that obviously your talent is everything. Your voice is everything. Um, your skills are everything. You know, you constantly have to be honing your skills, and that doesn't end until the day you die. So that, to me, is part of you know half of your job, in my opinion. Okay. In the old days, when when I say the old days, I'm talking about five, six years ago, when we, uh, you know, were. If you were a screenwriter, you were a screenwriter. If you were a filmmaker, you were a filmmaker. You know, if you were a screenwriter, you tried to get representation. That person tried to get you a job, you know, get you assignments, and you were a working writer. If you were a filmmaker, you bought your films to festivals, you hope somebody saw it, maybe it's a stepping stone to something else. But now we have, you know, online distribution channels. We have people trying to take their matters into their own hands. We have screenwriters that want to be filmmakers. We have filmmakers that want to be producers. We have actors that want to be, you know, that want to be filmmakers as well. Everybody, you know, is looking to control their own material, or a lot of people are trying to control their own material, which is not a bad thing. They don't want to relinquish it because they feel like it's too competitive or maybe they're not getting the response they want to get. If you want to do that, that's great, okay? But I feel that it, it does still behoove you to go out there and network and get to know people. Because even if you do take matters into your own hands and raise some money, go on to Kickstarter, raise $30,000, you're a screenwriter, you're making a short, now you're gonna, you're gonna film it. You know, now that you've done that, who are you showing it to? You know, where are you bringing it? So when I say it's not, you know, it's, it's as much of who you know, 
I don't mean that you got to know Harvey Weinstein. You know what I mean? I don't mean that, you know, you, you got to get your film to Spielberg. What I'm saying is you got to get your, you have to have, first of all, it's great to have a support group. That's part of it as well. But then the second thing is, of course, you want somebody that's going to be able to move the rock on your career. Okay. And so you need to be networking. And, you know, sometimes when I say, you know, it's not who, it's, it's who you know, it could be that actor on your set who is so moved by the way that you directed this thing and he knows somebody and he wants to pass it along. It's building this network of connections and the spider web that kind of grows out that, you know, where you can call in favors, where you can maybe get somebody to bring your material to this person. Um, you know, it's, I'll, I'll use the screenwriting example again because I, you know, I operate a lot in that world. A lot of managers will say, there, I have three stacks on my desk. My clients, people who recommend material to me, and then the blind queries. And the blind queries probably never get read. I hear it all the time. They get, and they always get pushed to the bottom, okay? You wanna be, if you're not that first stack, you wanna be in that second stack. And how do you get into that second stack? Well, you gotta have people that are willing to go out on a limb for you. People that, you know, people that you've cultivated relationships with that are willing to take your material to this person or to that person or know this distributor or know this person that runs the film festival that is gonna say, yeah, you know, we could sneak you in. You know, and it happens all the time, by the way. And that's what I mean by, you know, it's who you know. Let's take a hypothetical networking event. Let's suppose you've connected with maybe seven people, you've received four business cards, you've followed back a bunch of people on Twitter while you're there. Yeah. What's appropriate follow-up without being, where they can tell you have an agenda because you're too, you've got something like, hey, I just want to let you know it was really nice meeting you. By the way, here's the link to my crowdfunding. Yeah, no, too much. <laughs> too much. And I mean, and crowdfunding, again, if we're going to just even take that example, again, it's all about cultivating relationships. You know, uh, we talked a little bit off camera, but, you know, you do get those people that say, hey, I got five hours left in my campaign. Please support me. And, and you go and you look at it and they're 98% away from their goal. And you go, well, you got to be kidding me. You know, everybody senses desperation. Everybody senses um, narcissism, you know, and that's kind of easy to sense, but you, you get my point. Uh, everybody gets when a, a conversation was kind of fake, where it's like, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. And then five minutes later, it's, hey, look at my stuff. You know, it's an email or a tweet, hey, look at my stuff. It, you know, it's, again, it's all how you handle your stuff. I think the proper etiquette is, you know, great meeting you. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Or, you know, I enjoyed, if, this, if it's clear that you're not gonna be able to do for somebody, if you happen to meet, like we said earlier, like Harvey Weinstein or Steven Spielberg, um, you know, you're not gonna go with them and say, what can I do for you? But you're <laughs> gonna say, you know, good luck with the next thing. And if there's ever, you know, if it, would, if it would ever be okay, you know, to maybe send you something along the way, you know, uh, would you consider that? If it was somebody of that, you know, stature. Somebody a little lesser, it just might be keeping that conversation alive. You know, checking back in with them in a few weeks and just saying, hey, you know, I have something that I think might be, you know, that I feel is close to your sensibilities because you did film X before. You know, make it relatable, you know, make it understandable um, to that person. And I think that you're not always gonna get the response you want and you may not get a response at all, but I can guarantee you that if you don't take that approach, you won't get, you definitely won't get a response. You have a much better shot if you're, making that person feel human. If you you gotta understand that that person is getting a million of these. You know what I mean? They're getting, they're getting hit up all the time. Especially if they, met, they just got done meeting 500 people at a festival and you're one of them. 
okay? So how do you stand out from those 500? Well, you have two chances. You have one when you're face-to-face, and then you have the second when you follow up. So if you're, you know, one of uh, 50 out of the 500 that didn't say, hey, by the way, can you look at my stuff? And, you know, then you're in that pool of 50 now, not in that pool of 500, and you can work your way down from there. So, so if you do collect a business card or you do follow someone on social media, right, you know, you're both on your phones, oh, what's your address? Okay, yeah, let me follow you right now. A slow, nice to meet you, you know, and depending on the level that they're at, take it from there. I think so. I think that, you know, again, what would you, what would you say to the person if you were face-to-face with them again? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, as you're writing that email, as you're writing that tweet, you know, is this something that you would follow up if you ran into him again two days later in a coffee shop? You know, is this the conversation that you would have? Uh, I think you just have to take a real world approach to it. And I think you always have to be sensitive. Like I always say with anything in life, I always try to look at it from the other person's perspective. And I think it's a failing of humankind sometimes when it comes to communication and social media in general that we don't look at the other person's um you know, a, a schedule, life in general, what they experience, you know, their experiences mainly. Um, but if I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, this person's getting hit up everywhere he or she goes, mm-hmm. I want to be sensitive to that. So I am going to present myself in a way that makes me feel like I'm sensitive to that. So we got um, an email from someone and... Oh no. Yeah. Oh boy. They just said, hi there. I'm wondering if I can get involved with what you do. How can I help? I'm a multi-hyphenate from Des Moines and I've done, you know, directing and different things. Um, How can I help you? I think it's great. It's a fantastic approach. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about, this idea. I have a friend who talks about uh, networking in in live um, situations, not having anything to do with online. She teaches classes about this and everything, you know, um, classes, seminars, you name it. And her whole thing is, if, you're, if you spend 80% of the night asking that question, mm-hmm. you know, if you target your people and ask that question, that she guarantees you that you will get an 80% response, meaning that you'll get, even if you get the answer in the follow-up or right there, there really isn't anything that you could do for me right now, you're going to get asked, well, what are you doing? Like, what, what are you looking to do? Like, what, and you know, you might be compelled in that situation to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not looking for somebody or, you know, right now, you know, you can't help me right now, but I know somebody that, well, let me pass your resume on to send me your resume, send me your, your information, and maybe I can pass your information on to somebody else. It's a great approach because it's a selfless approach. And how often do you have somebody that you get into a conversation with that takes a selfless stance with you, you know, or, or a selfless approach with you? It doesn't happen very often. So it's impactful when it does. When, and again, it comes back to that whole idea of asking questions. You know, what can I do for you? I think it's great. And I, you know, I said earlier that, you know, if you're meeting somebody upper echelon, maybe that question doesn't connect, but it still could. It really, it really could because you know what? I've known people who have walked up to very, very big directors, uh, you know, very, very big producers and have asked that question and have ended up, you know, as an intern. You know what I mean? And maybe, and older, you know, just saying, hey, just let me on the set and I'll go get coffee, but I just want to see. And they'll say, oh, you know, people will be like, okay. You know, you never know. But taking that approach without question is a winning approach. It's, a, it's the right thing to do. Have you received an email like that? And if so, how did you handle it? I have. And there have been situations where, uh, you know, that person has been able to help me out in some way. 
um, even if it's you know helping out in an event you know saying hey you know if you want to come down and you want to be a part of it and you want to be in the middle of it come down and and you know you could help out you can assist in a, in, in a way or sometimes it's it's even you know we put on some live events it's you know come down and help us at the live event if you like and you you know you could sit in and you know it'd be completely free to you and and you can learn something there we we try to do a lot of things for a lot of people like you know we've man i've been asked by you know i've been approached by students let's say who are so passionate about what they're doing and asking if there's any intern spots open or whatever and maybe if i don't have them I'll go back to them because they're being so selfless and say, what are you studying? What do you got going on? Okay, I have this webinar coming up and it's normally, you know, or this class coming up and it's normally $50. It's normally $199. It's, you could go take it for free. You know what I mean? Because I, I love the way that you made that. I'm always, it always kind of hits me right in the right spot when somebody takes that approach and it makes me want to help that person or at least get to know that person and find out what they're all about. All right, this is kind of blunt, but difference between a narcissist on social media versus someone that's just a really great promoter of themselves can an artist do it wrong yeah absolutely and, it, and there's a huge difference uh, a person who promotes himself really really well still takes the uh, world view of engaging other people a narcissist on social media is strictly a broadcaster it's somebody that is out there consistently broadcasting the same message the the most consistent or the, the best example I can give of that is it happens all the time on Twitter. People go and they see a, you know, a follower count. You know, we have like 128,000 followers on Twitter. They see that number and immediately say, support my campaign. And then when you go to there or, or take a look at my video, or, hey, look at my reel, and they don't even take the time. The, the amazing thing is, is, hey, look at my reel, but then you look up that person's name on stage 32 and they're not on the site not even a member. So they haven't even taken the time to read your profile to see what you do, okay, or to ask you a question about it. They just see that number and they say, okay, I'm gonna go after them. And then if you go to their profile on Twitter, you'll see that they're posting the same message, static, to everybody, right? And if you go and you look at the number of followers of each person that they're hitting, it's 50,000, it's 60,000. So what these people have done is taken the time to do the research into who has a lot of followers so that they can blast them with narcissistic, you know, behavior. Like, you know, look at my real, look at my... Now, with crowdfunding, I mean, sometimes it's just complete lack of education. But that is a problem to me as well because that means you're lazy because most, most crowdfunding platforms, first of all, there's 7,000 articles out there about crowdfunding. I wrote one about you know, crowdfunding on Twitter or you know, promoting your crowdfunding campaign on Twitter mm -hmm. and the mistakes you make. But the major crowdfunding platforms out there not only have live people assisting you, but they give you kits on how to do it. So if you have made the choice to ignore those or not read those, and it's not worth your time, it's not my worth my time to even look at what you're doing. You know what I mean? You're obviously, you just, want, you just think you're a genius, and you know, if you build it, they will come, and you know, how, how could it possibly fail? And I'm just gonna blast everybody with my, you know, my genius. That's, the that's at least what you're putting forth to me. Sure, and I know crowdfunding's a different animal, and people tend to, there's almost a, a crowdfunding psychosis that sets in. I, you know, understandably, you yeah. know, time is on the line. But let's talk about maybe someone that's not under the pressure of their campaign expiring. The difference between narcissistic behavior of an actor or a filmmaker, screenwriter, whatever, versus an artist that just is really. 
doing it right. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the look at me behavior. It's look at my look at my reel. Look at my reel. Look at my reel. I just hey, I just cut my hey, I just cut my reel. <laughs> Yo, you know, take a look at this. It's like you know, first of all, the approach is terrible. Second of all, I mean, another thing that's just a huge turnoff. For example, like the narcissistic behavior is hey, hey, hey. And you're doing it to people you're not even following on social media, or you're doing it to people that you don't know anything about on social media. A good perform, uh, a good promoter, would be somebody that has already engaged you in some way and say, would say to me, "Hey, RB, you know, this is my new acting reel. Would you mind taking a look at it?" Now that's a totally different thing. If that person's already following me, like using the Twitter example, if that person's already following me on Twitter, okay. That's okay. That's cool. He's taking the time to follow me. He's following what I'm doing. If it's if he's engaged me over and over again, I think that's fantastic as well. Okay, and that is the give and take. Okay, now I'm much more compelled to maybe go take a look at. It, okay, I much rather them do that through stage thirty two. Of course, that they're posting it on on you know there, and I and I would like to see that. Like I will go to that person's profile and I will say, how come you haven't uploaded it yet? You know what I mean? I'll ask that question because again, it's it's closing the circle. Right. So I try to, in those types of situations, when you're a good promoter and you've engaged me and you've done all those things right, you've shown me that you're not just a broadcaster and you're not just being a narcissist. What what I'm compelled to do now is not only look at your reel, but maybe help you by saying, why aren't you posting it here? Why haven't you put this link here? Like you know what I mean? This is going to get you more followers, more likes, more comments. Why don't you do this? You know, more people are going to see it. So, it's all about engagement. It's all about that's the difference. So, aside from running Stage Thirty Two, mm -hmm. you're also a screenwriter, actor, voiceover mm -hmm. actor. Yeah. How has networking helped you with, let's say, the screenwriting? How has that transitioned you? It's made all the difference in the world. The you know, um, I'm a represented screenwriter because of social media. There were a lot of Things that led to that, I placed uh, second in uh, the Creative World Awards out of I think it was five thousand scripts. Obviously, you can get exposure from that. The exposure that I got from that led to a couple of people that I knew through social media. There was somebody that was interested. They knew somebody that I knew on social media. That person went to bat for me with somebody else, and all of a sudden it was again this web that I talked about earlier. All of a sudden, this was an expansion. That led me to David Greenblatt, and you know David founded Endeavor back I think in the you know late '80s or whatever. Sold it to William Morris, which is why William Morris Endeavor is one of the co-founders of it. He's been repping Shane Black since 1984. David wasn't somebody I was getting in front of without uh, people vouching for me, people that I had cultivated relationships on, with on social media who knew this person, who knew that person, who wanted to read the work now, who wanted to take a look at it, and who finally got it to a director who was repped by David. And the director said to David, you need to read this. And a day later, the director was on a plane out here and I was sitting in front of David, and three weeks later, I was repped. It doesn't happen without social media. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. But it also doesn't happen had I not cultivated those relationships, had I not worked the social media side of things. and. You know, there's no bigger shining example than that. You know, for me, I mean, it just doesn't happen without it. 
but also the hours that you put into writing as well. Well, so absolutely. And again, it's that balance. It's that, like I said, it's like to me, it's that 50-50 balance. Like I spend 50% of my time, my time on my craft outside of stage 32, of course. 50% of my time on my craft. But I, when, when I sit down, when I have the hours to work on my creative career, I spend 50% of the time on the stuff I'm working on. If that means I'm going to acting classes, I'm going to acting classes. But maybe during that time, I'm also networking. I spend the other 50% of the time trying to network, okay? It's so important. It's so vital. Everything good that has happened has come through, for me anyway, at least over the last few years. Even going back in a roundabout way to the film I produced, I was a producer on that went to Sundance, that was right at the beginning of stage 32 and there was somebody that i met on the site that actually ended up playing a big part in that film going forward it was somebody that was ended up being an ally of mine in the production so and that led to something else later on it's and then he introduced me to people and and on and on and on and on um so it, it is, it's, it's so vital, vitally important that you put in the time. It's just, you know, it, that's a perfect example of what I mean by it's who you know as well. The people that got me to David, let's say, you know, to my screenwriting manager, they weren't necessarily big players. They were people that believed in what I was doing. They were people that knew other people. They were people that went to those other people and said, hey, you know, the work is there. This just happened, he just finished second you need to look at this. And they said, okay, because I was vouched for through these other people. And that doesn't happen without social media. If there was a pie piece of the percentage of your day that you spend on social media, I, and I know this is getting really technical, yeah. but what, like, just a rough estimate. It's tough for me to say that because I, I spend a lot of time on it as the CEO of Stage 32. So I spend a lot of time helping people on the site, answering questions, and uh, you know, even just contributing in the forums and stuff like that. But. You know, again, I, I try to take half of my creative day. If I know if I have like six hours to, which I very rarely do, but if I know if I have an hour, you know, I'll spend a half hour writing or a half hour moving a project along. For example, like right now I'm working on producing a project and I'm probably gonna write the screenplay on it where, you know, a book needs to be optioned. And we've been working with the attorneys and working with everything, you know, along those lines. If I have two hours to spend on that, I'm hoping I can get through the work part of that in an hour, you know, to get that thing moving. And I'll spend the next hour networking, you know what I mean? And trying to get back to people and people who sent me network requests and looking at who these people are and if they're worth, you know, me accepting into the network and, and on and on and on. So, you know, it, it, or, you know, even if it's, well, it's a, actually a really good example. I, you know, with this particular project, I went and found another producer through the site who had recently optioned the book and even though I had been down through this process before, he was working in a lot of new media spaces, a lot of online, and I wanted to go to him and say, tell me your experiences. This is a person I met through the site. And we were able to communicate, get on the phone. You know, we talked on, online, but then we got on the phone and, you know, he gave me his experiences, which was very helpful, actually. So, again, that communication doesn't happen if I'm not spending the time networking or going and looking for that. RB, can you talk about your first year screenwriting? Yeah. How was that for you? Uh, what happened? It was interesting. I could tell you about my first night screenwriting. I, uh, you know, I had been around the film for a long time, so it wasn't I wasn't foreign to the the, the formatting and to the concept and everything. Um, and I had this, what I thought was is most first time screenwriters do. I had this brilliant idea, and I had this fantastic opening, and. I said, okay, tonight's the night. I'm sitting down, I cracked my final draft. I said, you know, I'm going. And 
cracked a, a bottle of, of Jack Daniels and poured myself a drink. And uh, five hours later, I had nine cages, and I was like, not bad. And my um, protagonist had moved from his car to the front door of a building, and that was nine pages. And nobody else, it was the only character, and I went, yeah, shit, I think I have a problem. I think, yeah, I think I got some troubles. So that was my first night. But, you know, I kind of rebounded quick and really, really took it upon myself to learn on my own. Um, didn't depend on a lot of the so-called expert screenwriting books that, you know, some of which I feel are, you know, promote the obvious. And um, just got myself back in it and said, okay, I, you know, I'm not going to write a first draft that's 200 pages. You know, I'm going to write a first draft that's 125, 130 and get it down. I'm going to know my story. And the first script was okay. You know, it actually got a pretty good response. I actually almost, I actually got an offer to uh, write on a TV staff off of it, but I didn't want, I didn't want it. And it was a, it was a, it wasn't exactly as great as it sounds. It was, it was very, very junior and very, very, you know, n nobody knew if the show was even going to go and everything, but it was interesting to get that kind of response. So I said, oh, man, you know, maybe it's not too bad, you know? The second script I wrote uh, was also in the first year. That did really well. It, it was a story that came to me kind of quick, and I spent a, l a little bit more time outlining it than I did the first one. So when I sat down to write it, I really, really knew where I wanted it to go. And I knew my ending. I think this is always imperative when you're a screenwriter. You know, I, I knew my, it's okay to have that ending change and it's already to have that journey along the way. But I think it's always great to really know where you're going. And I did with this particular story. Uh, that script did really, really well. It was a semifinalist at the page. Um, and I think it was a semifinalist at Austin that year. I think that was uh, maybe 2011 or 2012. And then the third script is the one that's in production, in pre well, in development right now with David. So you've read all the screenwriting books, what were so, or, or maybe you haven't, but what Not were some of your issues with them? I'm just curious. Well, I find, you know, I don't want to name names. Sure. You That's know, fine, yeah. But there is, <laughs> there is one out there that has a lot of really cute little names for things that I feel like are very, very obvious. To me, screenwriting is, if you understand three-act structure, okay, and a lot of people don't. Like, if you understand the fact that you need to have an inciting incident, then you have to have a first act break and a second act break, and you have high midpoint, and, you know, if you can understand these concepts, and those, you know, you might have to read a book for that if, if you know, you're just starting out. But if you can understand those things, then, to me, if you understand those basic tenets of writing a screenplay, then, to me, everything else you need to learn is available to you by reading great screenplays. Because you should be able to, at some point, and maybe before you ever write Fade In for the first time, if you understand those concepts and you understand, you know, story in general, arcs that, you know, all your characters need to have arcs and, you know, things of that nature, at least your, you know, first, secondary character, you know what I mean? Not every character. Not the guy that's giving you the lotto ticket behind the counter. <laughs> um, but if you understand the basics of that, then you should be able to look at a really, really good screenplay and be able to identify why that screenplay works. Here's the inciting incident. Here's the first act break. Here's the arc of this character. Here's, you know, coming into a scene late and getting out early. You know what I mean? Like all those things that, you, you know, you, you learn. I knew a lot of those things from working as a producer. Not everybody does. Okay. I get that. What I'm saying is, is that I feel like some of the more uh, general screenwriting books out there are more paint by numbers. 
and you don't want something that's paint by numbers. You know, you want to have room to roam when you're a screenwriter. And that means that if a book is telling you the inciting incident needs to be on page 12, that you shouldn't be sitting there, you know, ready to lose your mind because it happens on page 11 and you want to pad it so it goes to page, you know, you want to give somebody an extra, how you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? You know, dialogue to get yourself to page 12. That's why I don't like those books. But my education really came from reading very, very good screenplays. I always tell people, I get to speak at a lot of conferences, and I say, if you know the general basics that I'm talking about, take a really, really good screenplay and go read it. Like, take Raging Bull. Read it, okay? And then put the DVD in and sit down with the screenplay and the remote and watch, read along and watch why it works. And this is also a filmmaking masterclass in a lot of ways too, because you get to understand why the filmmaker you know, made the choices he did as well. But for the purposes of screenplay, screenwriting, you know, you look and you, you figure out why everything works. And it also works, by the way, with bad screenplays. Why, why didn't this work? Why did this movie fail? And you'll find the same mistakes. You'll find the dialogue went on too long. The character really doesn't have an arc. The main character really doesn't have an arc. You know, the second act goes on for two hours. You know, it could be anything. But if you understand why it's not working or why it does work, I think it informs you as a writer as to how to be more concise, how to write your characters more uh, vibrantly, how to write good dialogue. I think all those things are within really good screenplays. I think that's where the masterclass is once you learn the basics. At what point is it appropriate to bring in a guru or a story consultant? Or maybe it's not. There's this debate whether someone that's never really had a lot of scripts made teaching others yeah. seems strange, but then there's others who are better teachers than they are doers. Well, and there's a lot of snake oil salesmen, so I think you have to do your research. My whole thing with consultants, there are a lot of very good ones and, and quite a few that are great friends of mine that I would recommend to anybody. But I always think when you're looking for a consultant, you should, the, the best way to go about it is ask that consultant for uh, contacts of their clients so that you could reach out to them and ask them how they feel. Like a contractor. And, yeah, <laughs> and if they're not willing to give you that, then move on. Um, but when is it okay, you know, when is it appropriate? I think it's another problem that screenwriters have, and I think this is another problem with some of the books. I think you have to have a lot of trust in yourself. And I know that that's not easy for a writer. It isn't. It's not easy for any creative. We all have doubt. And Coppola you know, said famously, if you don't have fear, then you're not a true creative. It doesn't matter what your skill level is. But at some point, you have to embrace that fear. Okay? And you have to say, I feel pretty good about this. I feel pretty good about the story. I feel pretty good about the structure. I feel pretty good about my three acts. I feel pretty good about my inciting incident, my arcs, everything. And now what I like to do is bring in somebody that I can trust that is going to be, and this is key, brutally, you know, fierce about this work, you know, and, and be honest with me and not going to blow smoke up my skirt and say, you know, it's fantastic, okay? And that, of course, means that you don't go to your mom and you don't go to your family and, you know, your mom's not going to tell you have third act problems. Um, she's not going to know you have third, third <laughs> act problems. Um, so you got to go to somebody that, you know, that you can trust and somebody who is going to be honest with their, with their feedback. But I think that you have to make that decision when you're ready. I used to have sort of a rule of thumb when I first started. It's a little different now because with the Stage 32 Happy Writers, we're working directly with executives. So I can get my work. If I want somebody to critique my work, I can even pay for it through my own site to pay for somebody to, you know, of, of stature to look at the work. But before we had this, and before the site was even online, I had a coverage service that was a very, very general inexpensive but well uh, you know well respected coverage service and I would send and this is usually after my you know second or third draft 
I would send my screenplay, I would buy three pieces of coverage from, from that particular coverage service. If one person had a comment, a negative comment on something, I'd look at it. If two people had the same notes, I'd really, really look at it, and I probably would change it. If three people came back, I knew I had a problem. Okay, if all three people came back with the same thing. And then I had one trusted advisor that I had cultivated a relationship with who covered screenplays for studios for 20 years, somebody I found online, somebody that I had done my due diligence on, said it, and, uh, you know, and went to him, and he was like my last line of defense, okay? So once I corrected all the problems from the first three pieces of coverage, I trusted myself enough to say, okay, I can't be precious about this anymore. I gotta let it go. I'm gonna let him read it, and I know now the knives are gonna come out. And I trust him, okay? I totally trust him. And I trusted him enough that we had the type of relationship, and this is, again, by going to people that he worked with, I asked this question. If he pushes back on me, on some, you know, if he pushes on me, can I push back? And will he be receptive to me pushing back? Because I don't want to just, you know, give in. I want to know, I want to have a little bit of a debate about it if I really feel strong about it. And by the way, that's going to serve you well if you become a working writer because, you know, you're going to want to accept things, but if you're going to want to, you're going to pick your fights. You're going to fight for certain things, you know. Um, and, and he would. And he, he they, you know, the answer was yes, he will. Like, he'll, he'll allow you to go back. So he would always be my last line of defense. I would work with him, um, take his notes, go back, clean it up. And then at that point, I was out. I was trying to, you know, query uh, executives or query managers or submitting it to, to contests and everything. I was, wasn't precious about it anymore. And I wasn't reworking. Like, if I submitted it to festivals, or not to festivals, to contests or to managers or whatever, I wasn't reworking it at that point. Like, now it's gone, and now I'm working on the next thing. And if I do get feedback later on, then yes, I'll go back to that. But right now, if it's out at a contest and it's out to executives of any sort, managers, producers, or whatever, that's gone. On to the next thing. So it sounds like a fine line between having a bunch of yes people in your life versus saboteurs, because there could be people that may say it's bad when it's actually great. So yeah. finding that, that, that fine, because it's not easy to find the middle ground with that. No, and I think, it's, I think you get much more of one side, though. I think you get much more of the yes people. I think people yeah. are very... You know, uh, we were having a conversation the other day, and, and they said the, the biggest enemy of a creative is uh, the person who tells you yes all the time. The person that, you know, it, it's, you want somebody that's, that's going to be honest. You don't want, or the person that's going to be nice to you, I think was the, the way we put it. Like the person mm -hmm. that's just going to be nice. You don't want people to be nice. You want people to be honest, okay? Mm -hmm. Most people that are going to read your work are going to be nice if they're your friends and family and people that, or your acquaintances, or you're trading scripts with another writer, and that writer's gonna go, oh, you know, it was, it was terrific. And, you know, that's not good for you. No, no growth comes from that. Like, it's the same thing when you have debate with people, like, you know, a discussion with people. You know, growth comes from debate. Well, growth as a writer comes from getting honest feedback, it, it, or any, you know, creative pursuit, really. I mean, you know, you want honest feedback. Was I good in that scene? Eh, you know, you weren't so great in that scene if you're an actor, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You want to get that feedback. Well, what did I do wrong? What did I, you know, same thing as a writer. So you want to find, I don't, you know, if you're finding people that are being saboteurs, I mean, I think that you're probably surrounding yourself with the absolute wrong people. But I think, again, if you're giving yourself up to a consultant or somebody that's doing coverage for you, you have done your homework and you're, you're going to, you have gotten yourself to a position where you say, I trust this, pe this person implicitly, I'm giving it to them, and I'm going to be very receptive to that feedback. 
which of course, by the way, is the other part of the battle, is that you have to be receptive. Yeah. You know. So over the three scripts that you've done, what was that time span again? Well, I've written four. Four, I'm um, The first three were probably a year and a half or a year and four months. Yeah. And where have you seen your growth as a writer? Like, what, what have you seen that you've really honed in on? Maybe you got notes, you, you received notes on them. Like, you know, RB, can you change this? Or this character falls flat here, and then you've really fleshed it out. Um, structure a little bit. Um, certainly from the first script to the second script, there was a big jump in structure. And I think that the, you know, in refining the structure. And I think that what caused that was with the first script, I had a, what I thought was a good idea, but I didn't have the follow through the whole way. Like, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to find the story in the middle. I had the ending, which changed. So I was, you know, receptive to going into it because I had the beginning and the ending. But I really didn't, I, I, I allowed myself too much room kind of in the middle. So the story meandered and characters kind of came and went and, and things of that nature. With the next script, I didn't really outline in, in the traditional sense. I didn't go this scene, this, this scene, that, or have, you know, uh, uh, index cards or anything of that nature. But what I did was I kind of laid out my characters and said, uh, here's, here's how they're going to grow. Here's, because here's my beginning and here's my ending and here's how they're going to kind of get from here to here. Okay. And I'm going to allow myself some room to go, but not so much, you know, and that allowed, that made, I wrote that script very, very quickly because of that. Like I had the story and it, it flowed more uh, freely from me. And, you know, so when I got to the third script, there was this idea that, okay, it worked there. This is a completely different story. And they were two totally different stories from second to third. But, um, but I kind of get what works for me now. Like, and, you know, I kind of get what work, what keeps me from wandering off too far, you know? And I think that was one of the biggest differences for sure. And of those four scripts, how much easier has it been for you to receive feedback? Oh, as far as criticism? Oh my God, uh, so much easier. The first script, man, I, you know, I was like everybody else. I mean, I got my, I did exactly what I said earlier, the three pieces of coverage. And, you know, I was expecting them to come back brilliant. You know, I was expecting them to get the humor. It had a lot of comedy in it. And, um, you know, one person liked it. They were all passes, by the way. They were all passes. And uh, one person liked it. The other person was like, I like this character and I like this character. And one person just eviscerated it. And I, of course, spent, you know, like five days obsessing over that one piece of coverage going, you know, the son of a bitch doesn't get it. He's got no sense of humor. He's an idiot. You know, what would he know? And, you know, I went through that whole entire thing. And then I kind of sat there and went, all right, uh, you know, again, all three people are telling in certain instances, in certain spots, all three people are telling me the same thing. This character doesn't work. This character isn't, you know, growing. Um, you know, you're doing a great job with your second. This was actually one of the pieces of feedback on the, on the first one was, and you talked about growth earlier, when you have to kind of realize this, you're doing a great job with your secondary characters. Your secondary characters actually have all the growth, but your, your, your lead character kind of stays here. And I went, well, wait, how is that possible? I've been talking, I've been thinking about this character for like a year. But then I had to go back and look at it and go, well, wait a second, yeah, right, it's true. Everybody else is kind of growing around him, 
and he is kind of watching them all evolve and he's not really, so I had to go back to the drawing board and I had to say, okay, well, wait a second. And that's when I kind of wrote a little bit of an outline for this character and said, okay, looked at each scene individually and looked at what he did in that particular scene. What his, you know, was he being proactive or was he being passive? Which is a big mistake that a lot of screenwriters make. That, you know, things happen to their characters as opposed to their characters going out and doing things, um, which obviously is much more rewarding. And this character really wasn't doing anything. This character was kind of waiting in and out of everybody else's life and things were happening to him. And he was moving forward or backward based on kind of the things that were happening to him. So, you know, it, it took me a while to get there. Like, I was very defensive. Are you kidding me? I was like, how dare, like, what the hell, you know, these people don't know what the heck they're talking about. Like, who is this AZ guy? Like, do you get the initials of the guy that covered the script? Like, who the hell is this guy? You know? Bring him in front of me. I'll, I'll show him what a screenplay is. And yeah, so you know, the sec, you know, when I finally got, I took, I took a lot of the lessons I learned on the first script as far as the coverage was concerned, because I did end up getting a lot of coverage on that script because I kept rewriting it because I wanted to get, I wanted to get positive feedback the next time. Not that I was looking for recommends or anything like that. I just wanted to see less criticisms. And if I'm getting less criticisms, then I'm cleaning things up. So a lot of the criticism, like criticisms, I kept getting back helped me not only shape that script but inform the next one because this is where you're not like you know again the example of like you know your primary character not moving the story along it's the secondary characters that are moving it along you know that really carried over into my second script i knew exactly where that protagonist was going you know before i wrote page one let's say you get a phone call from another screenwriter that's had an az go with a red pen over their script yeah how are you going to talk them down from the ledge well, I, I, we talk about this all the time. I, I'm fortunate. It's amazing because I, I'm, even though I have this one script in development and I really have had nothing else made, I do get to speak at a lot of screenwriting conferences, and, um, which is great, and I really enjoy doing it. And uh, but you get that question often is, like, you know, how do you handle the criticism? How do you? And I say you just have to be realistic. Like, you have to be, you know, you can't be so precious about everything. You have to absorb it, digest it, and if you really, you know, if you've said to yourself, you know, I'm being as honest with myself as humanly possible and I don't see this, then you got to fight for it, okay? That's okay. But you, you got to make sure you really are being honest with yourself. And obviously that's easier said than done because as writers, you know, we are precious about our material. Mm -hmm. We do think that it's, you know, it works and, you know, that other people just aren't getting it. It's, it's you know, it's, it's easy to get to that point. Um, you know, with the end game, the script that's in development right now, you know, when I was working with David on things that he wanted, they were such minor things that I felt like I was gonna, you know, choke him, you know, at times, because it was like, you want, like, it's like this little thing, but I get it. Like, it's, it's a detail here and a detail there that sometimes makes all the difference in the world. Sometimes it's really, really big problems, and sometimes it's really, really small, little things. And you have to be receptive to both. And you have to be receptive to people's opinions, especially if they've climbed the mountain. You know what I mean? If, if the person that's giving you that feedback has been to the top and back, and you're still climbing, then you know, you gotta surrender a little bit. How does that writer do a gut check though? Because maybe they just, they've been told by mom, dad, and everybody back home in the school play that they did that they're amazing. But then here is different, and there are people that will just eviscerate you. Maybe they're not even trying to be mean. So how does someone do that gut check? Well, hopefully they are eviscerating you and they're not being mean. Hopefully they're just mm -hmm. being honest. Mm -hmm. And I think the way you do that gut check is that your mother, your brother, your sister, your, the, your teacher, your 
the you know your fifth grade uh, theater teacher or whatever that you wrote the great play about the tooth, uh, you know <laughs> the, the rotten tooth or something. They, what have they produced? What have they done mm. in this town? Mm. Interesting. Okay. What have they done here? Okay, they haven't done anything here. And if if that's what they were looking to do, then they should move out here and do it. It's fine. Listen, you always your friends and your family are always there. They're there for a different kind of support. They're there to support you with your dream that you want to be a working writer or that you want to be a working creative in any, you know, whatever the pursuit is. That's their job. Their job is to support you and not say to you, you're out of your freaking mind, don't pursue it. But their job is not to tell you that the script is great, okay? It's the job of people who are doing it to tell you what's right and what's wrong about your work. And if you can accept that, and again, if you've made the relationships where you're getting in front of these people or if you're paying for it with a you know, consultant or coverage from somebody that's been there, um, then you have already put trust in somebody with your dollars. Now you gotta put, you know, I'm gonna use a pun here and I wasn't intending it, but now you gotta do it with your sense. Like nice. you really do. I mean, you really do. Mm -hmm. You have to use your common sense and you gotta say, uh, you know, this is, this is why I'm here, okay? Great material rises to the top. You do need a little bit of luck. There's a lot of things that go into being a successful writer. But if the content, you know, whatever the luck is, the luck is a product of having, you know, the luck is secondary, is something that's gonna happen on the next level after you, after you produce the great content. Because no, it doesn't matter how much luck you have, if it gets in front of somebody and they think it's garbage, they're not gonna, you know, and if it is garbage, if the material's not there, it's, it's done. So you have to make sure it's the best it can be. And if you really want it to be the best it, it, it can be, you have to put your trust into somebody or a couple of somebody's. So consider the messenger. Definitely consider mm -hmm. the messenger. Mm -hmm. That's your job to consider the messenger. Um, but man, if you're you know if you're lucky enough, let's say it's not even coverage or a consultant. If you're lucky enough that somebody is passing your material along to a producer with credits, let's say, and that producer is you know willing to come back to you and not just say not for me, which you hear in this town all the time, but this producer is willing to come back and say it's not for me, but here's why it, w it didn't work for me. And you're gonna if you're gonna be defensive at that point and not be receptive when you're getting something from somebody who is making films, then shame on you. You know what I mean? Absolutely shame on you. So it's all about being receptive and not being precious. Screenwriting contests, you've been a part of them. Yep. And, you and we run them. And you run them, okay. Mm -hmm. yep. And your thoughts on them, what works, people's due diligence with them. Yeah, I think you have to do your due diligence with them. And I think that uh, for me, everything it's not about the money. Money's nice. Okay, it's nice to win a contest if the prize is 5000 or whatever, whatever it is. There was only one criteria for me when I was entering contests, and it's the only criteria that we have with Stage 32 as far as our contests are concerned. When we started you know, talking about the idea of running a contest, because we really, really did want to give writers an opportunity, the only thing that we talked about was access. And what I mean by that is, you can go win Joe's screenwriting contest and you can go run around and tell everybody you won Joe's screenwriting contest and you can put it in a query letter and nobody is going to care, okay? But, you know, if you win the nickel or you're, you, know, you do well on the page to, you know, I, I love the page, by the way, the people at the page I think are fantastic. Um, or if you win our contest, you are getting your script sent to actual people in the business that can move the rock in your career. And if that isn't what it's all about, then you shouldn't be a writer, okay? You should, you know, go do something else because it should all be, it should be about getting your career going. If you're gonna spend the money to get into a contest, 
even if you don't win, if the contest has any sort of cachet, that's okay. If you're a semifinalist, a finalist, and you're you you know now you're sitting at a networking thing, or you meet somebody online, and you 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 know that person is you're you're networking, and you're making the right moves with that person as far as you know cultivating that relationship, and you say at some point, oh, and by the way, Script X was you know a, a finalist at the page. Now it's like oh well, that's really interesting because I know that contest, and that contest carries some cachet. But as far as actually winning or being a finalist, for me it was always about the, I always wanted to look at who would be looking at my material if I made the finals or if I won, because some, some contests, they take all the finals. We do this, actually. We take all the finalists and take all their log lines, and we send them to at least 30 executives in the business. And these are managers, agents, producers, directors of development, and we list who these people are. Um, these are people that can get things done. Our contest winner from the blood list, we, you know, we connected with the blood list, uh, to do a horror contest and the person that won it is already in, got got management through the contest we flew him out to hollywood through the flew the top three out to hollywood put him in front of at an event 10 different managers and and, and uh, producers and then sent them off on meetings two of them got repped one the, the winner is repped the movies in development that's what you want out of a contest the reason i entered creative world award which led to you know getting my representation was because they you know, if you finished in the finals, they pushed you out to a bunch of executives in the industry. And ironically, it, it was a, for me, again, no connection being a bad connection. Ironically, it was actually an agent in Montreal who got his hands on my script through somebody else through that contest that started this whole ball rolling. You know, it's kind of a random thing, but it was still somebody that read the script, became a champion of it, and, and then it moved on through all the networking I spoke about earlier. So to me, it's all about access. You know, if, if you're entering a contest because you, like some people will say, enter a smaller contest, okay? Enter something that just started because your chances of winning are better, okay? I, it's a ridiculous, ridiculous notion because at the end of the day, like I said, if it's Joe's contest and it has 300 entries and you won, First of all, you're not going to know there's only 300 entries. You're not going to know the number, probably. It's not going to be full transparency. Second of all, that contest is not going to get you in front of the people that are going to move the needle on your career. The third thing is, if you take that contest win and you put it into any sort of query letter or bring it up in conversation, if you're lucky enough to be at a networking event where there are people of influence there that you, know, that you want to get in front of, it may even look worse for you because it may look like, oh, well, you won Joe's, but what'd you do in the nickel? Or what'd you do? You know what I mean? So, to me, it's it, there. There is nothing more. There, there is no. You do you do your research and you look at the contests that give you access. So, for a new screenwriter, at what point do you think that it's? What should be their own internal gauge as to whether they're ready to submit to, even a very small and I hate to like tier them, but lower tier, you know, contest. I'd rather you take. First of all, just going back to the lower tier thing. I'd rather you take that money and put it towards a consultant or really good coverage. Because if you're getting really, really good coverage and you're getting the response you want from that coverage, if that, you know, uh, if you get back a recommend or you get back a consider, okay, and there's only minor nitpicks, and then again, it's up to you to digest those and to be honest with yourself about whether those minor nitpicks are reasonable, do they make the story better or not. Once you clear your head on all that, then I would say just go into the more prestigious contest. If you have a budget, go into the ones that offer access. 
you know, you have to be honest with yourself, but I would much rather people, if you're going to spend money to have your work reviewed, then to me, you should go, uh, I mean, if you're going to spend your money on a contest, I'd rather you just take that money and, and get reviewed. Right. What are the stage 32 happy writers? Okay. So, well, you know, we talked about the contests and access. The reason that, you know, stage 32 happy writers was started by somebody named Joey Tuccio. And Joey, basically, the, the whole entire company was connecting writers with executives uh, to listen to pitches. And these, again, are managers, agents, directors, development, producers, people who are actually looking for material at the time. Like, if they're a manager, they have to be willing to take on new clients and so on and so forth. What I was blown away by with it was, as a writer who was unrepped at the time, and who was entering contests to get access, okay? You know, you enter a lot of these contests and you kind of fly blind, you get no feedback, okay? With, when I watched what Joey was doing at the Happy Writers and saw how here were writers being able to, no matter where they were in the world, be able to pitch directly to uh, any one of these executives via Skype, I found that to be completely fascinating because now the no unsolicited material rule goes away. These people are looking for material. You're getting immediate feedback, okay, on your pitch. And to me, that was fascinating. So that's why we went out and acquired the company. The main thing to me all the time when it comes to writers is access. How do you get to somebody that's going to make a difference? And that was what was so beautiful about this company. And we've had over 300 success stories. You know, people either being signed, sold, option, money options, not free, um, or placed on shows. I mean, it's been a remarkable thing. It's so rewarding for me as a writer because, again, like I said earlier, there are so many snake oil salesmen and there are so many ways that you could waste your money in, as a screenwriter, more than any other discipline, in my opinion. Like, it bothers me, you know, as an actor when I see you know, bad acting coaches or people trying to make you pay for, you know, head casting and, you know, for auditions all that criminal activity that I think is just, you know, horrendous. But it's so much worse for screenwriters right now because there are so many people preying online, you know, saying I'm an expert, I'm an expert, I'm an expert. I live in, you know, Huntsville, Alabama. And it's like, you know, I'm, I, but, you know, I'm a consultant. It's like, wait, really? Like, you know, come on. So that was why it was so important to bring that company into the fold because everything is about access and you're getting immediate feedback. It's, it's immediate gratification, you know, for you. And who doesn't want that? And so to me, again, I just coming full circle, to me, it's all about access. And that's, you know, the most important thing if you're a writer. RB, with the Stage 32 happy writers, are you, you're seeing them pitch, right? Or, or no? The, the way it works is we work with over 300 executives in Hollywood. They're all, again, producers, uh, agents, managers, directors of development, people making films or people representing screenwriters. They are on one side of the computer screen and you are on the other, and you could be anywhere in the world, and it's done via Skype, and you have eight minutes, okay? And you get to, we, we recommend that for about four of those minutes, you pitch your script, you know, that you are concise and that you get it out in four minutes, and that leaves you four minutes to speak with the executive. And at that point, the one or two things happens, okay? Well, the executive's gonna, you know, have a conversation with you. Why did you decide to write this? Why is this story personal, personal to you? Uh, how long have you been writing? What else have you done? That, those kinds of questions. At that point, at the end of the eight minutes, the uh, executive can either request the script or he'll explain why he, he doesn't feel like he wants to read the material, okay? And if he does accept the material, he will 
you know, once he's done reading it, give feedback to Joey, who runs that division of Stage 32, as to what the next steps are. Or he may contact the writer directly and say, you know, I want to read something else, or can we get on the phone, or whatever. So it's immediate access right to that executive. And most of these executives work for, you know, bigger management firms, bigger production companies, who most have a no unsolicited material rule, so you can't query them anyway. Um, so this breaks down that barrier. What are some of the things you've seen, though, writers do? I mean, you get to watch their Skype. Some, yeah, I've so, seen uh -huh. them, but I've also mm -hmm. been, you know, I've also been at, you know, I've spoken at other pitch fests and things of that nature, so I get to see a lot of pitching. And I, we also teach some classes on pitching, so yeah. Well, so we know writers are, are naturally more sort of intense and nervous, maybe, than, yeah. than other creatives. Sure. What are some of the pros and cons you see when they go up in front of these individuals, or even from their own home Skyping? Well, I think, that, you know, the biggest thing is they don't know the story. You know, I mean, you know, that's the biggest problem. Or they get um, too far into the story sometimes. Like in other words, you know, you're, you have four minutes more or less. I mean, you have eight, but you know, you want to leave time to have a conversation. So they'll get it too, too far into the secondary characters or too far into, you know, small plot points, okay? They don't follow the arc of the main character and what happens there. One of the best pieces of advice I, I had when I was pitching um, was take me through the middle of the third act. You know, give me your main character and take me to the, to, to the middle of the third act. I don't want to know the ending. And some, not everybody's like this. Some people want to know the ending. I don't want to know the ending. I want you to take me to a point where I am so desperate to know the ending that I have to read the script, okay? And, you know, so everybody has their own ways of doing things. Some people like when you say, you know, it's Jaws meets, you know, Spaceballs. And, you know, they like that kind of thing. As a starter, some people just like you to get right into the story. Um, but the, the idea is to be concise, to get your main, the main arc out, and to leave them wanting a little bit more at the end. So no more TMI, not too much information, and tease them. Tease them enough, yeah. I mean, some people will say, you know, I, you know well, tell me what happens, you know. But, I, but in my experience, I've seen it much more that, you know, leave me with a little something like yeah like you know i want to read it now like right, you know right. i want to know what the heck happens you know mm -hmm. know your log line know your main character know your arcs know your first act break because your first act break matters because if you're doing it correctly and know your inciting incident of course and what propels you know your main character off on his journey um what does that journey entail and ultimately what is the goal believe them wondering if they get there or maybe even how they get there at the end you know we understand you're writing a book on crowdsourcing, yeah, and it should be out in 2015. Probably, yeah, hopefully soon. by uh, the American Film Market in 2015. Yeah. Okay, by Focal Press. By Focal Press, mm -hmm. it's part of um, a new imprint for them, uh, the American Film Market Presents. So there's a few titles that they're going to launch this year, and this is one of them. Okay, um, what's the difference though between crowdfunding and crowdsourcing? Good question. This is the question that comes up all the time. So I tell people I'm writing a book about crowdsourcing, they immediately think crowdfunding. Crowdfunding, of course, is you know getting people to donate to a project that we're going to keep it in film, to your film project. Um, you set a goal, you go out and market yourself, uh, you, know, you set up a Kickstarter page, Indiegogo page, and you have people donate to the cause. Within crowdfunding, there is an element of crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing is all about identifying a crowd, engaging a crowd, and moving a crowd. So for example, let's say, let's stay inside the realm of a crowdfunding campaign. 
one of the case studies I have a in the book is a, 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 a documentary called The Mile, Mile and a Half, okay? Mile, Mile and a Half was about five cinematographers and a sound editor who decided that they, they're all health enthusiasts as well, they decided that they were gonna hike the entirety of the John Muir Trail, which is like 206 miles, and film it and record it, like the different ecosystems, the whole entire thing, to show it in its natural beauty. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like a broad-based, like something that everybody and the mother's gonna wanna watch. But what they did, and this was three to six months before they even started the campaign, was they went out and they started engaging hikers, health enthusiasts, camera people, you know, people that were uh, into uh, camera equipment and sound equipment and things of that nature, cinematographers and, and things of that nature, filmmakers, and said, here's what we're looking to do. And started a campaign on, on Facebook and on Twitter and, and on the social media and, you know, got people, for example, to what's your favorite trail to hike? How long have you been hiking? Do you have any tricks of the trade when you're out hiking overnight? When you go camping, what do you do? Things of this nature. And they built a community. That's crowdsourcing, okay? They identified a crowd and they started engaging the crowd. Mm. By the time that they were ready to go hike and then, you know, even start this campaign and they were going for an $85,000 raise, which is a lot of money, right? Especially for a documentary, um, you know, and, a, and this kind of documentary. They had already had about 40,000 followers on Twitter or likes on Twitter, uh, however many, I mean, on, on Facebook, I'm sorry, however many on, on Twitter. And they had engaged all sorts of bloggers, bloggers who wrote about hiking, bloggers who wrote about the outdoors, you know, so on and so forth. All of a sudden, some of these people went to outdoor uh, gear companies and said, hey, you should check out what these guys are doing. And all of a sudden, they were getting gear donated to them, camera equipment donated to them. All this stuff started happening before they even thought about putting the, the campaign live. That's crowdsourcing. That's the first two steps of crowdsourcing. Identifying the crowd, engaging the crowd, asking them questions, getting them involved, getting them engaged. They were posting videos all the time about what they planned to do on the trail, pictures from the trail you know, that other people had taken. They got people who had already hiked the trail to put up their videos and stuff like that. When the time came for them to uh, start promoting the Kickstarter campaign, they went to the crowd and they said, okay, we're ready. Now we're gonna ask would you support this project? The money came flowing in, okay? Everybody wanted to be involved because they had taken the time to identify and engage, and now they were asking them to move. So it's all about, that's exactly what crowdsourcing is. And you could do that for anything when it comes to a film. You could do that for locations, you know, uh, you could do it for characters. You know, I'm doing this film, and this is the subject of the film, and maybe the subject of the film is, you know, children with autism so you go to a group and you say you know this is this is what the film is about this is what my character is about how, who would like to name the character like you know like these are the, these are the the names that we've come up with for the main character like vote for it and now all of a sudden there's an engagement you know there's, there's an involvement that's crowdsourcing and so the book you know covers all aspects of crowdsourcing social media crowdfunding networking offline um, you name it. It's got five or six case studies in it, uh, ranging from shorts to features uh, to documentaries. And even, you know, at Stage 32, there's a little part about that in there because we've crowdsourced the site from day one. The, you know, the first day that I opened the doors to this thing, I went to 100 of my friends and I said, take a look at it. 
tell me what you like and what you don't like. So that's immediately crowdsourcing, okay? Because I'm asking you to, you know, and here's some features I was thinking about adding. You tell me if you think they're good or if you have other suggestions, okay? But the bigger ask was, if you like what we're doing, if you like this concept, I would like you to go out and invite five fellow creatives that you know, minimum, okay? And I'm gonna ask them to invite five, you know, five more people, minimum. We've been doing that since day one. We've never paid for advertising. We've never done any, you know, outward marketing, you know, outside of our own promotions and you know, at events and things of that nature. We have 400,000 people on the site. And it's just because people invite thousands, sometimes, you know, hundreds, thousands, dozens, you know, whatever, at a time. People will invite their entire cast and crew. People will invite their entire acting, you know, uh, class or their, you know, screenwriting group or whatever. That's crowdsourcing. It's getting them engaged, making them understand, making them a part of it, and then asking them to go carry the message. So the intention of crowdsourcing isn't always to then launch a crowdfunding campaign. No, no, no. Okay. No, okay. no. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Okay. No. But there is an element of crowdsourcing within every crowdfunding campaign, and mm -hmm. that's about cultivating the audience. We talked earlier about crowdfunding, and we talked about the, the idea that a lot of these campaigns fail, not only because you don't have a marketing plan before you start. Any good crowdfunding campaign should have a three to six month, you know, launch or, or ramp up, I should say, before you launch. Um, but it's approach. You see, when again, we go back to that idea of, hey, you, as opposed to, would you, you know, right. would you like to be involved in this? Can I give you ownership of kind of what we're doing? Can I make you feel like you're a part of it? You know, going back to the mile, mile and a half example, you know, here's this hiking, cinematography, nature, you know, hybrid. When the film premiered at the LA film, uh, uh, First Glance Film Festival, they had to open up a second, so many people showed up, they had to open up a second theater. That never happened before in the history of the festival. And it was because all these people had been so engaged for so long that they couldn't wait to see it because they felt like they were a part of it. It was a year and a half journey to the screen and they were there every step along the way, you know what I mean? And they felt pride and ownership in that. They sold a gajillion, you know, DVDs at the festival. The movie ended up being number two on iTunes in the documentary section behind Hero Dreams of Sushi, which has been up there forever. And, you know, I mean, it, it was all because they moved the crowd and the crowd supported it. From the crowdfunding campaigns that you've watched from afar or even supported, been involved in, how many, what percentage would you say don't have an idea about how to crowdsource? They know how to pull that trigger and launch that campaign and say, me, 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 here I am, donate. But they're not that great at cultivating a community. 90%. 90%, okay. I mean, it's a high number. It's a lot of people just don't get it. And, you know, again, it's that if you build it, they will come mentality. Um, and it just, just does not work in, you know, it might work with products. You know, you see like the Pebble Watch or something like that. Like it might work with a product because people are so awed by and say, oh, I want one of those. But with a film, the competition is so fierce for your eyeballs. There's so many crowdfunding campaigns. And if you are popular on social media, you are getting inundated with people saying, look at my campaign, look at it, look at it, look at it. It's the people that say, hey, I'm doing a movie on da 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 and you go, oh, that's cool. And where you at with it? Well, you know, we're probably six months out from even pre-production, but this is what we're gonna do. And I happen to notice that you, you know, it's a movie about baseball. I understand you're a baseball fan, da, 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 da. Why, you know, what's your favorite team? You know, and you're cultivating that relationship. Even if it's not just doing it 
directly to me one-on-one, -on -one, but doing it to your whole entire group and asking those questions, you know, and, and getting them involved. It makes such a difference that by the time when you finally get to that point when you're ready to launch and you finally make what we call the ask, you know, you haven't asked for anything before. You've asked questions of me, you know, about me, about my likes and everything like that, but you haven't asked me for anything. And now, of course, I'm going to be more engaged and more likely to support you because you not only identified the fact that I like, you know, that, that I'm your target audience, mm -hmm. but you've done it in a way that makes me feel engaged and connected to you. So I'm much more likely to support you as opposed to, hey, you. What if a filmmaker tells you, well, we just want to launch this campaign and make a movie. We're not looking to, like, spend six months trying to build. You're going to fail. I mean, you're going to fail. Unless you have, you know, the only way that that works, really, and is if, again, I talked about earlier about building up social currency. Well, it's the same thing as building up currency as a creative. You know, there's a reason that the Veronica Mars movie or Zach Braff, you know, they can go out and put something up and have to get funded right away. Well, because they have this currency with the, you know, with the world, I guess you could say, the online world or the people. They, they have fans. You know, they've built up this base, right? Some filmmakers, I know some filmmakers who have made some shorts who really, really cultivated relationships the whole way through and crowdsourced the whole way through and then hit their goals. And then when they come back to do the second movie, it's a little easier, okay? And when they go to do the third movie, it's a little easier because they keep these people, in, they keep everybody involved, that entire crowd. But I've also seen, and this happened, this is actually going to make it into the book, where uh, same exact example where you have a, a you know, first-time director who really worked social media, raised, I think it was $10,000 for a short. Everybody got a copy who donated. You know, everybody loved the guy. You know, he went to do the second one. He did the same thing again. Great. He went to do the third one. Did even better. He won some festivals and everything. And all of a sudden, he got a big head. And he said, well, I could just throw it up now. It was a year between, now he's gonna do his first feature and he needed a little bit more money and he said, I'm gonna go right back to the crowd. Of course they're gonna support it. But he threw it up, he didn't engage, he didn't, all of a sudden he became, oh, I'm, I'm here, like his tweets became, I'm here and I'm there and I'm off doing this and you know, it became like, you know, like a gump kind of thing, like he's, you know, hobnobbing here and hobnobbing there and nobody cared. Nobody cared anymore. It became, now you want, because every, every ask got bigger, like the raise got bigger, and he ended up not making it, and now he's struggling to get money for his next short. You can't, I, you, I just can't stress it enough that, you know, it really, especially when it comes to crowdfunding, it all comes down to relationships, and it all comes down to building those relationships and keeping those relationships. Even, you know, a mile, mile and a half to this day, okay, the film premiered two years ago, to this day, they are still engaging their audience. They are still putting videos out and just updates and saying, hey guys, you know, we're hiking this this weekend. Like, what are you guys up to? Like that kind of thing. It's, you know, there's something to that. Again, you feel ownership, you feel connection. And, and that's really what it's all about. It's crowd funding. You know, it's crowd sourcing. It's moving a crowd. It's not moving an individual. It's not yelling at an individual. It's not making demands of an individual. It's identifying, engaging, and moving a crowd. So with the other filmmaker who was not successful, was it the third or fourth time out? Fourth time, fourth with, time. this time with a feature, yep. It, was it more of an expectation and I don't have to do the dirty work? Or it's it was, dirty it was work, ego but. and hubris. It was, it was this idea that you know, they supported me the whole way through and, you know, he, he forgot how hard it was to get to where he, he got to as far as getting that crowd to follow him. Mm -hmm. 
And now he had kind of turned his back on the crowd because he was saying he wasn't releasing a video every other day or, or going to his you know, followers and saying, how you doing? Or this is the, what the movie's about. Here's a clip from, here's, you know, here's a scene. Like some people like, will take uh, two pages of the script and say, here's a little teaser of what we're looking to do. What do you think of this? And people are like, oh, it's really, really cool. Or yeah, maybe you should change that character's name to this or whatever. But you're engaged, you're involved. Sure. He wasn't doing any of that. Instead he was saying, well, now I'm in Paris and I'm talking to this guy and I, you know, I got and people were like, well, yeah, but we're still here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, you know, don't go all the way up here and not, like, you know, you're not giving us anything. Like, you're not engaging us anymore. You're not keeping us involved anymore. And if you're gonna crowdfund, I don't care what you're doing. If you're gonna crowdfund, and I don't care what kind of success you've had, you do have to have that element still. You have to keep people engaged. You have to make people feel like they're a part of it. Don't you think people want to see that quote-unquote Instagram life a little bit, though? Like, so they can kind of vicariously live through but that? But not if that's the only thing you're doing. Like, this became, you know, it's, it's a case study on how not to do things. It became, instead of, you know, it wasn't just the Instagram life, and it wasn't just like, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm here, like I said, like Gump or Zelig or whatever. It was selfie here, <laughs> selfie there, like, you know what I mean? Like living, you know, hashtag living large. Like, you know what wow, I mean? It's like, okay. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And people, you know, people are gonna tune you out. You know, you're done. You know, there's, there's the next thing, and there's the next thing, and there's the next project. I could throw my weight around the next one. You know, I could, do right. excuse me, I could donate to the next thing. Right. So he didn't become, he wasn't appreciative anymore and he may almost rubbing it in people's faces a little bit. Yeah, but, but the biggest thing, even if it wasn't so much, you know, maybe he was appreciative. Maybe he still had, but he wasn't engaging. Gotcha. He wasn't connecting. You know, everything is about connecting. You want to feel connected. I mean, it's the same thing about being, it's the same thing being a fan of somebody, really, if you think about it. I mean, if you, you know, people are fans of celebrities because they feel that they either, you know, there's either a respect thing or there's some, there's some sort of connection. They, they, they feel like they uh, mirror their values or, you know, oh, he's a great guy. And you sit there and go, how the hell do you know he's a great guy? You saw him in a movie. But, you know, he's but cute. There's, he's a cute guy. <laughs> he's cute. But there's a connection. In their mind, there's a connection. And when you sever that connection, you know, you lose it's why It's why some movie stars, you know, are here for the longest time and then they, they fall down. It's not always just age, it's just, or, you know, ta you know it, sometimes it's just a disconnect. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's certainly that way when it comes to crowdfunding and crowdsourcing. It's, it's uh, and social media. I mean, again, it's the same thing. You know, the people that get, the people that organically get a lot of likes are the people that, if they're not celebrities, the people that, you know, the people that get a lot of likes, a lot of followers, are the people that engage. They're the people that, you know, aren't just out there, like I said, broadcasting. They're out there posting great content and talking about it and asking questions about it or taking somebody else's comment, uh, uh, content and saying, well, you know, what compelled you to write that? What compelled you to do that? That's really interesting to me. Thank you for posting that. It makes a difference. You know what I mean? It really, really does. Uh, it's certainly no different when it comes to crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. So you talk about collaboration. What if a collaboration is not working? What if it is unbalanced? What is the best way for all of the collaborators to handle that? You mean, like if you have, if you have a film set and you have one person that's disruptive or? Not so much. I mean, just like, you know, we're all in this to collaborate because we're all now these multi-hyphenates right. with the advent of crowdfunding and DSLR cameras and stuff. So we can all kind of do this project on our own, but we need the help of others. So you're in a collaboration, and the collaboration is unbalanced. It's not necessarily on the film set. It mm -hmm. could be everybody has their role. Yeah. And 
How does someone handle that amicably? Oh, I said the word, amicably. Uh, well, I, I think, <laughs> you know, I would imagine that in that particular situation, there's going to be somebody that's going to be in charge. And I think that that person needs to be able to take the temperature of what's going on. And, um, you know, I think it speaks to what I said earlier about the fact that there's more competition than ever. So if there is somebody, everybody's expendable. I mean, that's the bottom line. Everybody's expendable. I mean, I've seen people fired off of shoots three quarters of the way through it. I mean, a little tougher with actors, but I've seen, you know, really quality DPs get knocked off, you know, 75% of the way through it because he's being a disruptive force or he thinks that he, you know, he wants to override the director or whatever. Um, it's, it's tougher than ever. It's, it's funny. There's more competition than ever right now because the barrier of entry to making a film and, to, and you know, the, the amount, the proliferation of places where you could distribute a film, the barrier of entry has gone down, the distribution channels have gone up. That means more people rushing into the arena, you know, saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, okay? That's good and bad. The good, the bad is there's so much noise, okay? But the, the, the good is that you could rise above that noise very, very easy, okay? Profe being professional, putting your best foot forward, being a true collaborator on and off the set, okay? Assisting people, showing your best face online, you know, like we said earlier, filling out your profile online if you're gonna do that kind of thing, okay? Every one of these things gives you another percentage advantage. You know, it could be 5%, 10%, 15% over what other people aren't doing, you know? So to me, you know, if you're going to have somebody that is going to be a disruptive force or somebody that is throwing off the balance of things, you know, I, I think you try to address it and you give somebody the benefit of the doubt and see if there's some sort of underlying circumstance that's causing that person to be off kilter. Um, but if it ends up just being a personality dispute of some sort, man, the pool is filled with people that could replace that person. How do you sever it? Well, I think you got to be honest. I mean, I think everything comes down to honesty in this life. I think you just have to be honest with the person and, you know, say it's not working. I mean, I just think that, like we said earlier when we were talking about screenwriting, if you're not getting honesty, then you're getting, you know, all you're doing is setting a person back. You know, if you're not, if you're just telling people good things and you're not being honest, how does that person grow? How do you grow? So I think it's, I think everything in life comes down to honesty. And so going separate ways and probably just not speaking your truth to other people about it because then that might poison it for another person. You know, there's a lot of talk in this town and sometimes people take sides. Yeah, well, I think, well, when it comes to Hollywood, I think you need to be the ultimate diplomat. I mean, I just think it's the way it is. Nobody wants to burn a bridge in this town because, you know, it's been said a million times before, the person that's in the mailroom today could be running the studio tomorrow and it's not unprecedented. Um, I just think that if you handle yourself in a professional manner, and you handle yourself in a collaborative manner. And, you know, that second part is difficult for some people because we do a lot of work in isolation. You know, writers, filmmakers, even actors running lines, with the, you know, learning their, learning their uh, lines. Um, but if you embrace a true collaborative spirit, you're not gonna get yourself in trouble in this business. You're not gonna find yourself in those situations very often, or you shouldn't. And if you do consistently find yourself in those positions, then I think you need to look in the mirror. What about if, one force seems to be overriding the force too much and one personality is too strong. How do you know the balance is right? 
Well, I think everybody's opinion matters. I think healthy debate, you know, is always great. If somebody is unwilling to yield their position at a certain point, I think that that's just another thing that needs to be addressed. I mean, I just think that, um, again, you know, we this is a collaborative business, and we all, you know, great films, even great theater, you know, it happens because everybody pulls in the same direction. And, you know, it's very, very rare that something comes together that's great where there's been controversy or conflict throughout. So if the person that's being headstrong can't yield, then, like I said, pull somebody else out of the pool. Speaking of Coppola, what does he say? Um, everything you build with great passion invites chaos? That's true too, but I think it, I think it invites chaos within more than, I think it's internal chaos. I think, you know, I mean, Coppola, I love Coppola, you know, and he talks a ton about the, the internal challenge of the artist and the creator. And I think that that's more of what he's talking about. I think that we create a lot of chaos for ourselves. And I think we create a lot of chaos for ourselves, you know, doubt, fear. I mean, it's prevalent always. I don't care who you are. There's always, you know, anxiety. Um, but you know, you deal with it the best you can, and you don't put it out onto somebody else. You don't, you know, uh, transfer it. You know. Future for stage thirty-two. Yeah, we have uh, so many plans, and you know, only so many bodies to execute them. But you know, I used to joke that I used to joke that we wanted to be Home Depot for filmmakers, and and now it's becoming much less of a joke with each passing day. We laugh a little bit less about that because. You know, we want to provide every single tool possible, you know, for filmmakers from, or, or all creatives, I should say, from concept to completion, we used to say, but now we're talking about, you know, concept to distribution and beyond. And, you know, we have a lot of people on this site creating incredible content, and we want to be able to curate that content. And we want to be able to take our uh, most respected members as far as their talents are concerned and their work is concerned and make sure that they're showcased and make sure that they're highlighted. And, uh, you know, we just, like I said, we just distributed our first film online, which was cut, and uh, we plan on doing a lot more of that. And we have a lot, of, we just have a lot of plans in the future that I think are gonna be really, really exciting as we move into this streaming, distributing, um, uh, all these new outlets and all these new opportunities, we wanna be at the forefront of everything that, that's embodied with them. And so Stage 32 was born from you being on a film set and wanting to connect with people? It was, it was born from a lot of different things. Like I said, the embryonic idea, even though maybe I didn't realize it back then, was my acting days in New York and seeing so many people leave the game. The, the second part was being on the set of Another Happy Day, uh, the film that went to Sundance, that, you know, again, we had this family and then everybody went home and they were all looking for jobs and very, very talented people. And I felt like there had to be a better way with that. And then the third thing was being at the American film market. Um, we were there to sell a film, and you know I was watching people come from all over the world, taking their lottery shot more or less. I don't want to call it a lottery shot because I mean that's actually not unfair because you know a lot of people came with quality material, but sort of a lottery a lottery shot in the sense that this was their week. Okay, they were going to take you know they had saved up all their money, traveled halfway around the world, and now they're going to try to do this. And when I spoke to people and said, "What happens if you don't?" you know, talking to people from Australia or people from uh, Japan and saying, what happens if you don't sell here? And they were saying, well, you know, probably come back a year from now and try again. And I said, really? And they're like, well, what else are we supposed to do? 
we have no other connections. There's no other way to get to people. And I said, that was the final straw that I said, okay, I have to do this. So the idea really, I really had the idea back in like 2009, but it took me two years to convince myself to actually go do it because I knew it was going to be a, a huge undertaking and uh, a lot of my time. And, I, and at the time I was, you know, writing and producing. So, well, I still am, but I mean, you know, it, I didn't want to pull away from that. Um, but I just felt like it was, it was necessary. There was a need. And, and I really did believe coming from an internet background and having run some businesses in the internet space prior to all this, I really did feel that niche, network, niche social networks were the next big thing. And that people that you know were on broad-based networks were going to be on broad-based networks for friends and family and not necessarily for their careers. And I think that that's proven to be true. I think that you know most people use Facebook um, and even Twitter to a certain extent to, you know, uh, for friends and family, especially Facebook, for friends and family. But the people, you know, all these niche networks have, have popped up for hobbies and for specific business. And for this industry, there was nothing. And, you know, stage 32.